Welcome into the Radiopedia reading room for another week, a podcast unconcerned with books or poetry, tea leaves or palmistry. It's a radiology podcast. My name is Andrew Dixon and joining me once again, like a pain that just keeps coming back, it's my (laughs) co-host Frank Gaylard. Okay, so I'm going to guess today's topic is like renal colic or maybe some horrible ulcerative venereal disease. (laughs) No, you have to you have to think beyond your own medical history, Frank, for today's episode. <laughs> uh, trigeminal neuralgia is the topic ah, okay. today. Yeah, it's going to be another readful episode. Ah. It's proving proving to be quite a popular format. This one, excellent. So this time around, I'm joined by the one and only Christine Glastonbury for a chat about She's trigeminal amazing. neuralgia. She is. Um, but first, speaking of popular formats of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll be doing a hostful episode, not next week, but the week after. So now would be a great time uh, for listeners to send in your comments, questions, or to leave us an entertaining review somewhere on the internet. Um, and Frank, if you can gather together some fresh goats, that'd be awesome. <laughs> oh, I am I'm fully goated up, Dixon. Oh, I'm having good. serious PTSD flashbacks because My wife and my 10-year-old are both housebound with COVID. I think I've probably had it, but I've been testing negative repeatedly. My 12-year-old probably has it, but he's he never really gets sick. And the homeschooling aspect of it just broke me today. And so I'm a little bit tipsy. I'm a little (laughs) bit annoyed and just generally grumpy. So many goats are being written down in my little notepad. Very good. It's all good content. It's all good content. (laughs) (laughs) All for the pod. It's a readful episode today. So you know what that means, Frank? Spot the fake. Spot the fake. That's right. You're right. This is good. So I suspect you already know a fair bit about trigeminal neuralgia. And I like to stress you a little bit. So I'm not actually (laughs) going to ask you questions directly about trigeminal neuralgia. I'm going to ask you some that are loosely related (laughs) to the topic. Okay. So I'll read three statements. Two are true and one is fake, and you need to spot the fake. As usual, I've merged a few elements into each because Uh, that's the way I like to do it. Statement number one, Galen, the OG, you know, the original Mm -hmm. Roman Greek physician who lived from AD 129 to 216, he comes up in this readful episode, Frank. Mm -hmm. So is it true that due to a prohibition on human dissections at the time, Galen's anatomical reports were based mainly on the dissection of Barbary apes, although he did encourage his students to examine dead gladiators or bodies that washed up. All right. Statement number two, (laughs) Roman numerals come up in this readful, Frank, because cranial nerves. Is it true that zero cannot be represented in Roman numerals, but there are fractions. A dot is one twelfth, two dots is two twelfths, etc. But instead of six twelfths being six dots, the letter S is used. (laughs) (laughs) And statement number III. See what I did there? (laughs) Ah, Very clever. Teflon, the polymer, comes up in this readful, Frank. Is it true that Teflon, or polytetrafluoroethylene, was first developed for the Apollo space program by the DuPont Chemical Company, and among many other uses, Teflon is now used to enhance the armour-piercing properties of bullets. 
All right, Gaylord, you ready? Those are those are hard. So <laughs> I, I think I can spot falseness in all of them. So yeah, the right. Teflon being used in armor-piercing bullets, that's true. Mm-hmm. It okay. was definitely developed by Dupont, so that's true. Mm-hmm. Whether it was developed for the Apollo space program, look, it might well have because um, regolith, you know, moon dust, mm-hmm. is an absolute bugger and it gets yeah, into yeah. everything. And so I, I wouldn't be surprised. So I'm going to say statement III is true. Okay. So then we've got the Roman numerals. I should know this. I know that there was no zero and that caused all sorts of problems. I never heard of fractions. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could have made any of that up. And the S, I don't know that S is used in anything else, so that might be true. I'm surprised that there was a prohibition of human dissections in the time of Galen. So mm-hmm. I'm going to go with statement one is wrong. Okay. Well, I'm going to take these in reverse order. So the Teflon polymer, this is actually the false one. Oh. <laughs> I picked the two most common myths about Teflon to put into this statement. So there's a myth that Teflon was uh, developed for the Apollo space program, and it was indeed used in the heat shields as well as in the spacesuits mm-hmm. uh, for the Apollo space program, but it was actually developed a lot earlier in that. In fact, the discovery was uh, serendipitous. A guy was trying to find a new uh, refrigerant fluid and ah. discovered this white chemical was being deposited and it was very, very slippery and hard, <laughs> um, and that was Teflon, and then it was, yeah, DuPont. And, in fact, it was used for the atomic bomb project, actually, oh. so back in World War Two, Is it used on bullets? Well, it is used, yeah, so you can have Teflon-coated bullets, and the myth is that that gives it a better ability to penetrate through bulletproof vests and things like that. However, that's not true. The Teflon actually is there to protect the gun the barrel of the gun, okay, so that it it, it relieves the amount of stress on the gun. You can fire the gun a lot more times if you've got a Teflon-coated bullet, but it doesn't actually change the armour-piercing property. So, see, you make fun of me for being old, but you can see that I'm a child of the internet because I fell for these internet memes. And the other ones, you fell for the things that I thought were interesting as well, which is the fact that, yeah, Galen wasn't able to do that. Actually, quite advanced, I guess, at this time. And yeah, it was, it was prohibited to do dissections on humans. And so he would have to, had to use apes. And even apes, he found that their facial expressions were too close to humans. And so actually, he, there's some sources saying he switched to pigs. What is a Barnaby ape, by the way? Barbary ape. Uh, it's just like a little monkey, apey thing. <laughs> it does have a face that looks a lot a lot like a human. Welcome to the zoology podcast. <laughs> but, but yes, he did encourage his students to, to seek out dead gladiators and bodies washed up on shore and to have a little look at those right. for their anatomical knowledge. And uh, yeah, Roman numerals, there is no Roman numeral for zero, so you can't represent that. But that is true about the dots. So you do have one dot, and this is more related to Roman coins. They had, you know, three dots would be three twelfths. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, once you got to six, it was replaced by the letter S, meaning semi, which means half. Is what it, so you would then have an S with one dot, and that would be seven twelfths. Ah. And, in fact, when you think about it, twelfths are kind of more useful in this context than, than a base 10 system because you can divide 12 into one third, half, quarter very easily, whereas you can't yeah. do that with 10. This sounds like we're reinventing quite interesting. Oh, is that a podcast, is it? That's a uh, Stephen Fry uh, BBC oh, yeah, game QI. show. Yeah, 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 yeah QI. Yeah. 
Yeah, we need some cheesy music in the background. (laughs) (laughs) All right, but we better get on back on track and go to our trigeminal neuralgia readful episode that I recorded about a week ago with Christine Glastonbury, and then Frank and I will be back for another chat. Joining me now in the reading room, all the way from UCSF in San Francisco, academic neuroradiologist, professor of clinical radiology, educator, mentor, expatriate Australian, head and neck legend, it's Christine Glastonbury. Andrew, it's really great to be here. I'm going to work on that legend title, (laughs) but thanks for inviting me to be part of Radiopedia again. Always a pleasure to have you here. And by the end of this readful episode of the podcast, hopefully, you will be happy with that legendary status. This is a readful episode, so I'm basically going to read a Radiopedia article to you, Christine. It's one of your favourite pet topics, and then you're going to add in some pearls of wisdom as we go along. And you've chosen the article, Trigeminal Neuralgia. Is there a reason for choosing this article? There is, but should I give it all away at the beginning? Maybe when we get to the end, when we've gone through it, we can tie it all together. And I'll tell you, I'll tell everybody why it is that this one is really meaningful to me. I like it very, very much. All right, well, let's just get into it then, shall we? So, trigeminal neuralgia, also known as tic de la rue, corresponds to a clinical manifestation of sudden, severe paroxysms of excruciating pain on one side of the face, which usually last for a few seconds to a few minutes, involving one or more branches of the trigeminal nerve, cranial nerve 5. Neurovascular compression is the most prevalent cause. Other causes include compression due to cerebellopontine angle tumours, or cysts, perineural tumour spread, and multiple sclerosis. That's our intro. That's absolutely perfect because when you're reading a, a scan and you see trigeminal neuralgia, that's what the history should be, these paroxysms of severe unilateral facial pain. Let's move on to the epidemiology So the incidence is approximately 4.3 per 100,000 per year. The vast majority of cases are unilateral, with the right side of the face being affected more commonly, a ratio of 1.5 to 1, and around 3% are bilateral. It peaks around age 60 to 70 years, and its prevalence increases with age. The maxillary branch, so cranial nerve V2, is the most commonly affected, and the ophthalmic branch, V1, is the least affected. So some important little things there, I'm just going to restate. So when we're talking about trigeminal neuralgia, we're thinking usually unilateral. We're really thinking about older patients and usually we're thinking about V2 distribution because we're going to get to some warning signs later where if it's not these things, then it can mean that it's not a classical trigeminal neuralgia, right? Absolutely perfect, Andrew. That's So we're thinking cheek pain, paroxysms of cheek pain in someone, older adults, I would like to think that that is someone who's older than I am, but generally over (laughs) the age of 40 is what we think of with older adults. So before we get into those clinical criteria and the warning signs a little bit more, I actually want to ask you a somewhat unrelated question, Christine. We like to do this in the podcast, some get to know you type questions. And the question is, do you have a favorite imaging study to read? That is a terrific question. And the answer 
to that is one that actually surprises even me. Yeah. About a year and a half ago, the chair of surgery at UCSF came to me and she was really unhappy about the really heterogeneous reads for parathyroid tumors, the 4D CTs. Mm-hmm. And she was like, Christine, can you fix it? So I took it on and I said, okay, everybody, I will read every single 4D CT so that they're reported in the same systematic way. And we keep our chair of surgery happy. She's the chair of surgery and she's an endocrine surgeon. She's awesome. So I started doing them and I hated them, like hated them, doing every one of them, like every single one. Now I love them. I really, so it's now, it's like hide and seek and it's, um, it's very satisfying. It's like with a lot of things, once you do a lot of them, you can suddenly get a whole lot better at it. So I think I like it because it used to, you know, scare the daylights out of me. And, and now I'm so super comfortable with them. A lot of places do that as the first line imaging study. Mm-hmm. We only do it if the cestamibi and ultrasound are discordant or are yeah. non-localizing. So they're not usually classic easy ones. They're weird ones. You know what? My experience is almost identical to that. Quite a few years ago, I remember listening to Jenny Huang talk about 4D CT for parathyroids. Mm-hmm. I kind of took them on as a bit of a challenge in the department. And it is just so satisfying finding a tiny little ectopic parathyroid adenoma that you know has been you know difficult to spot on the system EV and the ultrasound. We're the same. We don't use it as the primary investigation. And in fact, we don't do it all that commonly. But when they do come through, you know, I try to try to grab those ones as well. They're quite satisfying. Yeah. Frank Gaylard's when I asked him this question, he actually reversed it and he said, I'll tell you the tell you the study I least like to report. <laughs> it was a four D C T. Oh no, it was like those whole spine MRIs looking for neurofibromas and things like oh, that. Oh good lord. Whole, total spine MRs. Oh shoot me now. They're terrible. Yeah. <laughs> but then he said, but his favorite is when it's the same, a whole spine MRI to look for schwannomas, but the patient had too much motion and abandoned the scan, and so therefore you just <laughs> just put a little one-line report and you're done. That's cheating. That's totally cheating. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to clinical presentation now. It tends to present as attacks of sudden shock-like excruciating pain, which usually lasts for a few seconds to about two minutes, most often involving the maxillary branch. The pain is typically triggered by trivial stimuli such as talking, drinking, brushing teeth, shaving, chewing, or touching the face. However, it may also occur spontaneously. The diagnostic criteria for trigeminal neuralgia are defined by, and here we have a couple of academic societies listed, both of which sound like a barrel of laughs. So there's the (laughs) IASP, which is the International Association for the Study of Pain, and the ICHD slash IHS, which is the International Classification of Headache Disorders slash International Headache Society. Ever been to those meetings, Kristen? No, very fancy <laughs> names though. Maybe we'll get an invite. Mm-hmm. Uh, these esteemed organisations have come up with five criteria for trigeminal neuralgia, and we have them listed here. So the first one is paroxysmal attacks of pain lasting from a fraction of a second to two minutes, affecting one or more divisions of the trigeminal nerve. Two, the pain exhibits at least one of the following characteristics. So it needs to be either intense, sudden, superficial, or stabbing, or precipitated by trigger factors or trigger areas. And then the third criteria they have is attacks are similar among patients. I think that means as an individual person, your attacks are always similar. You always get the same kind of attack. Uh, Number four, 
No neurological disorder is clinically evident. That's important. And the fifth and final one is not attributed to another disorder, for example, periapical dental inflammation. That's a a really nice list. I had not before this article seen it kind of listed out like that, giving the summary. This is really nice and clean. And now you and I and everybody who's listening to this and everybody who's reading this article are going to be really familiar with it. But I kind of would like people to challenge the people who are sending you the requests that say trigeminal neuralgia to be sure of that because often a lot of the scans that you're reading, it says trigeminal neuralgia and it's just pain. It's not a paroxysmal Uh attack. It's not this, there's no trigger zone. You know, they talk about that. You gave examples of shaving or something or brushing your hair. It sends it off. This defined trigeminal neuralgia exactly like this. These are the ones that are more likely to find that you have neurovascular compression. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that a lot of people use the phrase trigeminal neuralgia when a patient has facial pain and it's not paroxysmal. It's not this intense stabbing pain. It doesn't have a trigger zone and everything else, you know, other neurological disorders, et cetera, haven't been excluded. So they'll put on the request, oh, someone comes in, oh, I've got cheek pain, oh, trigeminal neuralgia. And so the radiologist kind of has that the blinkers Mm -hmm. on you're thinking oh I'm looking for neurovascular compression but really any symptoms related to the trigeminal nerve so pain that may be constant may be dull may be aching any sort of sensory abnormality so tingling in the face or paresthesias I have seen all of these cases with a history trigeminal neuralgia Mm -hmm. coming on the request form that's really trigeminal neuropathy So this is really important for radiologists to understand, ideally for all the clinicians sending you patients to understand that trigeminal pain is trigeminal neuropathy. If it is a type of pain that fits your five beautifully listed criteria, that's Mm -hmm. trigeminal neuralgia, which is very specific type of trigeminal neuropathy. Awesome. Uh, And we will get into some warning signs, which are basically things you should be looking out for in the clinical request or trying to dig up in the EMR to know when you're looking at a case that's not a typical trigeminal neuralgia. We also have a little line here that says, note that if autonomic symptoms are prominent, e.g. lacrimation, the condition more likely represents a trigeminal autonomic cephalgia, such as short-lasting unilateral neuralgia form headache with cranial autonomic symptoms, abbreviated to SUNA, S-U-N-A or short-lasting unilateral neuralgia form headache attacks with conjunctival injection and tearing, abbreviated to SUNCT, S-U-N-C-T. We'll move on to the warning signs now. So the diagnosis of trigeminal neuralgia is based nearly entirely on history. However, some warning signs should prompt further investigation, and we have seven listed here. So number one, difficulty in achieving pain control. Two, poor response to carbamazepine, which is the most common medication used for trigeminal neuralgia. Three, a history of skin lesions or oral lesions that could lead to perineural tumor spread. Really important. We'll come back to this. Four, associated sensory changes, deafness, or other ear problems. Again, suggesting that it's more than just the trigeminal nerve involved. Five, when affecting only the ophthalmic division or when bilateral, it suggests there may be a lesion, benign or malignant, 
or multiple sclerosis. So as we know, trigeminal neuralgia classically involves V2 and it's unilateral, but if you've got bilateral involvement and if you've got involvement of the ophthalmic division, then that's a bit of a warning sign. And then number six, patients under 40 years of age. Again, we know that it's older patients who tend to get trigeminal neuralgia. And the final one we have listed here, number seven, is optic neuritis, which obviously would suggest a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. Exactly. And and these are things that when I read a scan and I, it is a patient under the age of 40, I'm like my antennas go up with that one. I need to be thinking mm-hmm. about what is actually going on. Is it truly trigeminal neuralgia or is it something else? And we'll come to that with kind of my approach to how we read scans all comes from the direction of could the history be wrong or could the history be incomplete? But certainly if you get any of this sort of things in your history, you should be really be very careful when you're reading these scans. All right. The next section of our trigeminal neuralgia article is pathology. The most common cause of trigeminal neuralgia is a compressing loop of an artery, most commonly the superior cerebellar artery, or vein, most commonly the transverse pontine vein, compressing the cisternal portion of the trigeminal nerve at its transitional zone. So a few little words to define there. But before we do, certainly I see the superior cerebellar artery causing neurovascular conflict, sometimes the anterior inferior cerebellar artery as well. But I can't remember ever really reporting a transverse pontine vein. Is that rare, Christine? Have you seen it? I have one case of a vein that was thought to be causative. The patient never had surgery, but that was thought to be Mm -hmm. causative. I think it's rare. I, I don't see it very often. The veins just aren't packed in adjacent to the trigeminal nerve in the way that the arteries course through the Mm -hmm. cisterns. So I think that might be why, but as I said, I've got one case that's the putative cause, yeah. One case that I have had was a developmental venous anomaly that was right near the trigeminal root entry, obviously intraaxial, and that was on exactly the same side as the patient had their trigeminal neuralgia. I'm not sure whether it was the cause, but I have seen that in the past. And I think there were a few case reports suggesting that there is potentially an association between the two. Kind of makes sense. Interesting. Yeah. All right. We'll continue on here. The site where the nerve exits the brainstem is known as the nerve root entry zone. Typically three to four millimetres distal to this, oligodendrocytes that supply insulating myelin to the nerve fibres give way to Schwann cells. This is known as the transition zone and measures approximately two millimetres in length. So just to summarise there, you've got three to four millimetres of the nerve coming out from the anterior aspect of the midpons, and then you've got this two millimetre area where there's kind of a transition between those oligodendrocytes and then the Schwann cells. The proximal cisternal portion, especially the transition zone, is far more vulnerable than any other part of the nerve to trigeminal neuralgia, neurovascular conflict. The reason for this, however, is not well understood. Histologically, there is associated demyelination of the compressed nerve in some cases. That is controversial and it is not well understood. Although rare, posterior fossa tumours can be another cause, most commonly vestibular schwannomas, meningiomas, arachnoid cysts or epidermoid cysts, so our typical cerebellar pontine angle lesions. Multiple sclerosis may also cause trigeminal neuralgia and, indeed, its incidence is much higher in multiple sclerosis patients than in the general population. It is thought that both pontine plaques and neurovascular compression in combination 
produce a double crush mechanism whereby intrapontine inflammatory demyelination and cisternal mechanical possible demyelination affect the same first order neurons. That's actually something I added into the article just the other day, Christine, because I always wondered, you know, why do MS patients seem to get trigeminal neuralgia more often? Is it purely due to a demyelinating lesion within the pons itself, or is there something to do with the sternal segment as well? And it seems to be, it is, you know, two factors at play here. Absolutely fascinating. I had not even thought about that before, Andrew. And Double crush, by the way, is a very cool phrase. I like that. It is cool. That actually kind of makes a lot of sense. It'd be awfully hard to prove this. I mean, no one's going to want to dive in and biopsy everybody here. Mm -hmm. Um, The trigeminal nerves. I mean, it's been done in some studies of trigeminal nerve patients, but no one's in a rush to do it. But it is interesting whether that's there is more. And of course, as we know with MS, what we see on MR scans today compared to Mm. 20 years ago when I was starting, you know, we see way more tiny, tiny demyelinating lesions. So who knows how much we'll see in another 20 years as far as seeing really subtle lesions, perhaps involving areas like the transition zone. Now, before we get into the imaging of trigeminal neuralgia, Christine, it's time for another random question. (laughs) Are you ready? Yep. So what occupation other than your own would you like to try? Long pause. There's a part of me that um, radiology is generally not a super creative. In fact, medicine is not, I consider, a super creative area. Now, you're a very creative person. Like I see the new cover for the Radiopedia 2023 conference. (laughs) It looks amazing. Last year's was amazing. The year before... You're very creative. So there's a part of me that wishes that I had a kind of creative outlet sometimes. And last year I was connected. One of the surgeons, is she's actually an opera singer in her spare time, but she connected me with the San Francisco Opera because they were putting on this opera where they wanted to use images of the brain. So she connected me and I was working with the guy who's the set designer. And it was so awesome to have this kind of insight into how people whose entire occupation is very much creative, but not just creating, but you've got deadlines. It's very practical. It has to be spectacular in this visual concept as well. It was my tiny little window into the lives of people whose entire occupation is creative. So if I was not doing head and neck, being a neuroradiologist, I would mm-hmm. love to be in a creative field. And again, I want to be in the background creating the stuff, not someone on the stage <laughs> not on singing. And yeah. yeah, not on camera. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I had very similar thoughts just the other day. We went and saw Once the musical. I'm not oh, sure yeah. if you've seen that one. Yeah. It's it's fantastic. And I was thinking the same. It'd be great just to be backstage involved every day, just to feel, because you just can feel the energy from the audience and the performers. My wife and I have been, I think for the last two months, every single weekend, we've been to some kind of live performance because the comedy festival was on here in Melbourne. So we've been doing so many live shows and it really is. Yeah. Again, I do, I do do a lot of creative things, you know, the, the podcast, the the conference, and I've seen your slide designs for this year's conference, um, Christine. So you do do a lot of creativity there. Um, but yeah, the, the performing arts 
that side of it, I think, yeah, it would be a great, a great thing just, just to try. And that's the idea of this question. You could just try it for a few right. months and then come back to radiology. Don't need to make money from it. <laughs> just have fun. <laughs> no, 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 exactly. No, I, I, it fascinates me that the pressure and, and the, just the way these people just, I don't know, it, it's awesome. Yeah. All right. The next section, getting back to trigeminal neuralgia, Christine, we're no longer at the opera, radiographic <laughs> refocusing, features. Refocusing. <laughs> The diagnosis of trigeminal neuralgia is based on the patient's history and an imaging study is usually indicated when there are clinical suggestive signs. Imaging can help diagnose causes such as multiple sclerosis and tumours. CT is limited in evaluating the brainstem and the cisterns. MRI is the imaging modality of choice and should be considered the initial screening procedure in the assessment of patients with trigeminal neuralgia. I think that's pretty straightforward. MRI is definitely the way to go. So we'll move on to Mm -hmm. talk about MRI. Vascular contact to forming the trigeminal nerve is seen in about 15% of cases. As the transition zone between oligodendroglial-derived myelin to Schwann cells cannot currently be identified on imaging, it is important to mention how far anterior to the trigeminal root entry zone the vessel compressing the nerve is located. The majority of transitional zones extend no further than 3 to 4 millimeters anterior to the nerve root entry zone. And this has therefore been suggested as a reasonable cutoff between vessels that are likely to be symptomatic versus those that are more likely to be incidental. It should be noted, however, that occasionally compression of the nerve in the anterior cisternal segment, so further than 4 millimeters away from the root entry, can also be symptomatic, and many asymptomatic patients have vessels contacting the proximal nerve. So as such, it is not possible to dogmatically state whether a vessel is symptomatic or not. So this is kind of a a key part of the imaging role for, for radiologists when it comes to looking at the vessels. Christine, what is your approach to describing the vessels and the significance or insignificance of them on MRI? Well, I think this is a a really good paragraph, really pointing to the problem in all of this. We're looking for something very specific. The paragraph gives you very clear definition of to measure the distance from the root entry zone in order to give an idea whether it's at that transitional zone, but also mentions that compression can be symptomatic, maybe asymptomatic. And, you know, who knows, which is, you know, part of the problem with this. But there is something that it doesn't mention here, and that is there's two ideas, neurovascular contact versus Mm -hmm. neurovascular compression. And it is supposed to be the compression that's problematic. In other words, deformity or displacement of the nerve in that cisternal segment not just contact alone. And so when you read the literature, when people are looking at uh, MR sequences, how you can do it, some people are very clear about differentiating those two things, neurovascular contact of a vessel versus Mm -hmm. compression of the nerve and changing caliber or deformity of the nerve. It's kind of like nerve roots in the lumbar spine, isn't it, when they're kind of getting contacted versus you know, actually compressed. I cannot believe we're comparing cranial nerves to lumbar nerves. <laughs> On the hierarchy of nerves, it's an unbelievable <laughs> comparison. <laughs> Nerve atrophy is something our article doesn't mention here, but it did come up in my reading around the topic. I think nerve atrophy is uncommon, but it does have an association with trigeminal neuralgia. Is that right? Is it worth looking for? 
Absolutely. If you see it, that is even more suggestive that that neurovascular contact is significant. So absolutely. The other time you may see it is in a patient who's had a previous gamma knife as well. So post gamma Mm -hmm. knife, you'll usually see atrophy of the nerve. If you've got a patient who's never had it, has trigeminal neuralgia, absolutely call atrophy. If you can see it and you really need to have your coronal images, and I usually reformat along the nerve, along the exact plane of the nerve. Well, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your protocol for looking at the the vessels, what imaging you use. Depending on which vendor it is, you want very thin slice imaging, very heavily T2 weighted imaging, and you're really just trying to differentiate a vessel, nerve, and CSF. And so we Mm -hmm. use Fiesta, but obviously KISS gives you the same result through the cerebellopontine angle. Ours are about 0.8 millimeter slices, nice and thin slices. It gives you the best imaging you can get. I also, at the same time, I want an MRA, and this is a non-contrast time of flight of the posterior fossa. And so when I read the scans, I actually put the two right next to each other, split the screen. I've got the Fiesta on one side, the MRA time of flight on the other. So that when I'm looking at the cisternal segments, I can actually work out, is this likely to be a vein or is this likely to be an artery? And which artery Mm -hmm. is it that is contacting? Because all I can see is the contact, but it's much easier to follow the vessels on the time of flight. So that goes nicely into the next section of our radiographic features portion of the article. So it says a dedicated protocol, and we actually have a separate article talking about trigeminal neuralgia protocol for MRI, which I'll refer people off to because we won't go through it in detail, includes T2 and T1 volumetric acquisition techniques with thin slices in all three planes. However, an evidence-based review did not find evidence to support or refute the usefulness of MRI for this purpose, although I think we all kind of know that you want very high resolution images to spot those vessels. And then to measure the distance from the root entry zone as well. You really need nice images to do that. And the final little section here, it says diffusion weighted imaging can be used to assess the cisternal and brainstem components of the nerve and assess ADC values, fractional anisotropy and mean diffusivity. Now, I can tell you, Christine, that I've never really used diffusion-weighted imaging in the context of trigeminal neuralgia. Do you use it? I use diffusion-weighted imaging, but I'm not using it to look at that nerve specifically. There are certainly people who do diffusion tensor imaging looking to see, again, does the the nerve look any different on that side? But it's more of a research Mm -hmm. tool there, not really a diagnostic tool. So there are other issues here, though. That's You absolutely need a beautiful Fiesta or Kiss. You need a really nice time of flight MRA of the posterior fossa to look at the vessels. But the thing that I really want to impress upon people is those two sequences are really going to give you the ability to tell the surgeon, this is what, or the neurologist, this is what I see with regard to neurovascular contact or neurovascular compression on the trigeminal nerve. But you need to remember, looking back at earlier on when we were talking about the fact that a lot of people mix up trigeminal neuropathy and trigeminal neuralgia, and that pathology can result in true trigeminal neuralgia, that you really need to, as the radiologist, make sure you're looking for all the other pathologies that might be causing the symptoms. And so in addition to those two sequences, I would never want to be reading a scan without having really good face sort of skull-based protocol 
in mm-hmm. order to look for all those other pathologies, including looking for evidence that the patient might have demyelinating disease that's causative. We have a, a protocol that we have. It's kind of a face skull-based protocol. We have a, a nice, small 18-centimeter field of view. We do three-millimeter sequences, axial and coronal T1, T2 fat sat, and post-contrast T1 fat sat. And of course, we always have diffusion, usually just axial plane. But that allows me to look for all the other pathologies that might be causing trigeminal neuralgia or might be causing trigeminal neuropathy because that's what the patient really has. And I suspect, Christine, this is one of the major reasons why you selected this article to talk about today, to try to emphasize the role of the radiologist is not just to look for neurovascular compression. In fact, that's probably the easier side of it. The more advanced aspect of it and the more important role is to make sure you're looking for any alternate cause such as demyelination, but particularly perineural tumor spread because that's a very hard one to spot. And we're thinking particularly about those patients with the warning sign, maybe multiple nerves involved. It's not just the V2 division pain. It's not a classic trigeminal neuralgia, maybe a younger patient although older patients will get it as well. I think that's why you really chose this article today. Am I right? I could have put a lecture together just only showing cases of trigeminal neuralgia in quotation marks. You know, that was the requesting history. Mm -hmm. And the finding on the scan was not neurovascular compression, but it was perineural tumor spread that nobody had been thinking about. And I feel that's a job. One of the jobs of the radiologist is to think about what's actually going on with the patient and try and move past that bias you have of a diagnosis of trigeminal neuralgia. Let's move on now to the treatment and prognosis section. So the initial treatment of trigeminal neuralgia is medical with carbamazepine and or gabapentin. Large surgical series have confirmed that microvascular decompression of the trigeminal nerve root is an efficient and durable treatment for trigeminal neuralgia. Other treatment procedures include, we've got three listed here, uh, so gamma knife uh, radiosurgery, so radiation focused at the trigeminal root in the posterior cranial fossa. The second one is rhizotomies, controlled destruction of the trigeminal ganglion or root by various means thermal, chemical, or mechanical. And the final one is a trigeminal nerve stimulator. And it says here, considered off-label use. This was in 2019 in the USA. Um, so Christine, other than the medical treatment, it would seem that you know surgical microvascular decompression is the most common and definitive treatment, right? And is Teflon the most common thing that they use? That's the one that our guys use here. Yeah. That's the one that I see when they're lifting off, and I have some pretty pretty gross pictures of it too, when they're kind of lifting the vessels away and separating the vessel from the nerve. Are there any things to be aware of postoperatively when you're looking at these patients who've had a microvascular decompression with Teflon? If you don't know that that's what the patient has yeah. had in the past, they can be really confusing sometimes. You're like, what in the world is going on in this posterior fossa? Yeah, and aneurysm or something. What's going on here? Exactly. So yes. <laughs> so if you're reading it knowing they've had that surgery, that's not such of a problem. You're like, okay, that's probably the Teflon and it's kind of heterogeneous and messy there and there's some susceptibility and some enhancement. But And obviously they've had a suboccipital craniotomy. But yeah. uh, um, if you don't know, it's it's definitely a trap for young players to look at something and call it something else. Yeah. 
But postoperatively, you sometimes will see after these, not with so much with the surgical, sorry, with the um, gamma knife ones, mm -hmm. um, you may see atrophy of the trigeminal nerve that wasn't there preoperatively. Yeah. develops over time but generally it's that weird cp angle mass-like enhancement uh, that confuses people you don't need to concentrate too much on looking at whether the teflon is actually separating the nerve from the vessel or it's a bit too hard to see that so it gets really messy once they've been in there so you really can't see things well enough in order to say yes that thing which was three millimeters from the root entry zone is now separated we don't in this article currently, but we often have a section, Christine, called practical points around about here in our Radiopedia articles. And I think what I'm going to do is after we finish recording today, I'm going to add a few based on our chat. For example, you know, the importance of neuralgia versus neuropathy, the importance of warning signs, young patients, bilateral, multiple nerve involvements, and maybe a comment about the role of the radiologist to not just look for neurovascular compromise, but to actually look for tumours and make sure you don't miss perineural tumour spread and therefore to include a skull base face protocol in your MRI. And then when I record the outro with Frank, I might read them out and then they can live on within the article as a testament to our time together. How does that sound? Immortalised forever. <laughs> with that, can you put in there as well mm -hmm. when i'm reading these scans the last thing i do is look for that neurovascular compression i start with everything else looking for any yeah. possible cp angle mass anything else look along v1 v2 v3 and then i look for neurovascular compression i do it as a way to force myself to not miss all the other subtle stuff you know you've excluded ms you've excluded everything else okay now i'm going to find that neurovascular compression awesome i'll definitely i'll definitely add that in now the final section of the article is history and etymology and mainly i want to read this so i can sound all cultured and stuff uh, we, you know we spoke about opera and musicals now i'm going to do some some history uh, i'm going to mispronounce things all over the place here but let's see how i go so history and etymology John Fothergill, 1712 to 1780, an English physician, described a series of 14 cases of trigeminal neuralgia in a paper in 1773. 1773, that's a Hamilton reference. We're going back to musicals. Hence, it's a well-known eponym. Fothergill disease is another name for trigeminal neuralgia. Although it is now thought that the condition had been described in the second century by both the legendary just like you, Christine, the legendary Greek physician Galen uh, from 129 to 200 and Aratius of Cappadocia and also by Avicenna in the 11th century. I don't know if I got any of those right, but it sounds it's, pretty cool, doesn't it? It sounded good. Do you want a really useless trivia piece about Fothergill as well? Do I ever? Yes, I do. So he was a Quaker. Um, which is not the interesting tri uh, trivial piece, <laughs> but he gave the first known lecture on mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation oh. before, like 20 years before he ever wrote about trigeminal neuralgia. Oh, yeah. So he was a creepy guy as well. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. They would have looked, imagine if you came up with that, they would have been, okay, so you breathe into the mouth of the person. Yeah. Good one, Father Gill. You've done it again. Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, that's it, Christine. We've made it to the end of the trigeminal neuralgia article. Any final comments or would you like me to just give you one more random question? 
this is good. I hope people have followed that. I'm fascinated to know how other people deal with um, reading these scans too. But please, I want people to try my trick of the last thing is look for the neurovascular compression. Try and look for everything else. Awesome. I reckon people will. Okay, so one last random question. Oh, gosh. What can I do? Here we go. Ah, Have you got any one-line philosophy or mantra that you live by, Christine? You know you have. Okay, well, this is going to sound really corny. So That's what I want. (laughs) (laughs) Great. So I have a full life is the word I would. There's a lot going on at all times, like kids, everything. Just work is chaos, right? And there are times when I get a little like, oh, my God, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And there's a line that somebody told me, which is you've everybody's heard a million times, but they kind of reinterpret it for me. And and it's um, in in Spanish. And my Spanish accent, as my kids will tell you, is appalling is esto también pasara, which is this too shall pass. Uh-huh. And which is like, when you're feeling anxious, this too shall pass. But also, and what's kind of more important for me now to remember is when you're in really good things, you're having a fantastic time with your friends and your family, is to remember this too shall pass and to really treasure and really mm-hmm. make the most of those good moments as well as, you know, because I think there's a lot of focusing on the stressful moments in life. So it's a reminder that the good and the bad, it all passes. Like we're here for a short time. So this too shall pass. I like that. I will cherish this podcast interview with you. It's been (laughs) fantastic. I'll be able to look back on it. Before we finish, you have recorded a lecture already for Radiopedia 2023, which is coming up in July, July 24 to 28. So people should go and get registered for that. Your lecture is on perineural tumor spread, and it's awesome. I've watched it. Um, I think your day one, session one, of the conference because we always like to lead with the best and that's you. So I look forward to seeing that live and people seeing that lecture. And I'll also be joining you for a panel discussion as well at the conference. Thank you very much, Andrew. And for all of those people who are going, okay, I've got to look at V1, V2, V3. She's telling me to look at everything. This lecture is going to cover that anatomy and make it really easy to look for perineural tumor spread along those branches of the trigeminal nerve, which means when you're reading trigeminal neuralgia cases, you're going to know exactly what to look for as well. The perfect companion to this podcast. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm really honored to be asked to do this. And this is a really well-written article. I really, I thought it was beautifully put together. So thank you for um, giving me the chance to go through it with you. No worries. And if you find any other Radiopedia articles that you love, then send them to me and I'd be very happy to have you back on for another readful episode of the podcast. Christine, see you later. Have a good day. Awesome. Thanks so much, Andrew. Great to chat. Bye. Bye. Christine Glastonbury. How, how good was that? She's such a star. Officially a legend, I think, Gayla. Indeed, definitely. Now, even though we record these chats every week, Frank, I want you to really savour this one tonight, mate, because this too shall pass. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was really interesting because whenever you hear about this too shall pass, you kind of say it to your kids when they're having an injection or, you know, you stub your toe. Mm. It's like, oh, the badness will be over. But it's equally true that the goodness will be over 
too. And it made me think of um, an epitaph that's seen on gravestones, which is along the lines of, as you are now, so once was I, and as I am now, so shall thou be. And it's this reminder to, you know, don't take it for granted that you're around. And um, I think we probably do a bit too much. We turn up to work every day, for example. (laughs) (laughs) Got to stop and smell the rose. But even when you're at work, you need to find yeah, those moments, exactly. don't you? Yeah. yeah. No, I liked I liked that twist on a well-known saying. Now, I have officially updated the Radiopedia Trigeminal Neuralgia article, Frank, with the new practical points section. Yes, I saw that. I've done my homework. Now, I won't actually read them out because we covered them all, but is there anything in particular that you wanted to, to chat about from this episode? I just wanted to touch on two things. The first one was, and only because it took me many, many, many years to work the difference out between these two things. And that mm-hmm. is the difference between nerve root entry zone and transition zone. Yeah, I, I think I was well into my consultant years thinking that you always had to look at the nerve root entry zone and where the nerve comes out of the brainstem and that's where the action was. But in fact, the, the transition between oligodendrocytes and Schwann cells occurs at what's known as the transition zone which is not usually at the nerve root entry zone. It can be, but it's usually further along the nerve. It's yep. also known as the Obersteiner Riedlich zone, oh. which is a shame we don't use that in everyday language. <laughs> Sounds like quite a sensual zone, that one. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing that's interesting about that is not only is it, in the case of the trigeminal nerve, four or five millimeters usually anterior to the nerve root entry zone. Mm-hmm. And so you do need to look for vessels further up. But every other nerve has it as well. And in fact, the trigeminal nerve is one of the ones where it's closest to the nerve root entry zone. So the vestibular cochlear nerve, for example, it's it's up to a centimeter away from the brainstem. And so to, to not just look at the nerve root entry zone, I think is an important point. And the other point that I think is super important in trigeminal neuralgia, but also in other conditions like Parkinsonism or even Alzheimer's, And that's that the role of imaging is as much about looking for other causes that might mimic that presentation as it is to find supportive evidence. Christine did a great job of sort of highlighting that in trigeminal neuralgia. But with Parkinson's, for example, we don't really have a good neuroimaging biomarker of Parkinson's. People talk about the swallowtail, but that's it's right up there in my top five bird-related signs I dislike. <laughs> yeah, uh, It's a rubbish sign, right? Squint, you might be able to see it. <laughs> Maybe. But really, it's all about finding other causes of a tremor that aren't yeah. Parkinson's. And so you need to think broadly and starting with looking for the other things rather than the pathology itself is a really good tip as well. And that's something I've added into one of those practical points on the trigeminal neuralgia article, that idea that, yeah, look for everything else. And then as a final task, have a little look for the artery contacting the nerve. I joked in the intro that you're like a pain that keeps coming (laughs) back every week. But can you just imagine having a disease like that where at any moment a severe debilitating pain can just strike you down? So um, this is one of the moments where I came close to being cancelled. So full disclosure, I don't think this is good or funny or to be encouraged. (laughs) We're getting an anecdote, folks. (laughs) I was reviewing a trigeminal neuralgia case with one of my fellows. Well, maybe she was a registrar. I'm not sure. Anyway, I was talking about trigeminal neuralgia in principle as a general Mm -hmm. condition. And I was saying how horrible a condition it is 
and how high the suicide rate is amongst patients who have intractable trigeminal mm. neuralgia. And she looked like she didn't understand why that might be the case. And so I just turned to her and I said, well, can you imagine going through life and at any moment you can be bang, <laughs> have an electric shock. Yeah. And she burst into tears. Right then and there, she kind of had a bit of a startle and burst into full crying. And I thought, that's it. I'm fired. I've just... <laughs> HR will be I've just bullied or just done something horrible and I was apologizing and feeling awful. And she was being very kind and saying, you know, no, no, it's not you, it's me. I have, I've got a pronounced startle reflex. And it was like, no, that's rubbish. That can't be true. And so I felt bad for about a week until we were rostered together again. And then someone opened the door slightly quickly and she burst into tears. Oh, I thought you were going to well. say you, test, you tested it out. <laughs> no. No, so it's true. She really does have a startle reflex and it wasn't entirely my fault. It was still kind of my fault, but not entirely my fault. So in some ways, maybe she probably does understand a bit about trichemonal neuralgia. <laughs> probably does. <laughs> Do not try and frighten your trainees. That's uh, tip number one. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, let's let's wrap things up there, Frank. How can people get in contact with us? <laughs> well, we're at Radiopedia on Twitter and Instagram, as well as at Frank Gaylord and at Dr. Andrew Dixon. And you can, of course, email us at podcast at radiopedia.org with ideas and feedback. And don't forget, our hostful episode is coming up in a couple of weeks. So now is a great time to write in with any of your thoughts and comments. Yes, startle us with something funny. And if you want to help support Radiopedia, you can become a paid supporter via the website or purchase an all-access pass to our online courses and conferences. And in doing so, you'll be helping us to give free conference access to people in 125 low- and middle-income countries. And Radiopedia 2023 is coming up soon, Frank, so it everyone is, should it is get indeed. registered. And what, 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 what else can people do to help out, Frank? And you can also help us out by leaving a five-star review in the podcast app of your choosing. And this is a special moment, Dixon, because this week we received our first swear word review. Oh, yeah, we did. We yeah. did. It was good. I mean, there was like F, lots of symbols. That was effing hilarious. Yeah, which that's was good. good. We, we, uh, we haven't received an, an emoji review yet, have we? don't think so, no, but I, th I think that might have been in reference to my Barn Me story from last week's I podcast. Hope so. so if uh, <laughs> if the rest of our episodes. <laughs> if you haven't listened to that one, then maybe go back and give that one a listen. I'll read the sign-off now, Frank, so you can mm -hmm. catch us all again. What? Hang on. <laughs> and we'll catch you all again sometime soon in the reading room. Stay right, everyone, and don't lick that brown substance off your wrist unless you know what it is. Oh, references to previous episodes. We're yeah. going to drive people crazy. All right. See you, mate. <laughs> see you later. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>